Coming up, it's Philosophy Talk. As leaders in consciousness transfer technology, we have brought humanity into a new era, providing the brightest minds renewed life to fulfill their true potential. Some futurists think one day we will be able to upload ourselves onto a computer and live forever that way. Isn't that just science fiction? We cater to the great, the visionaries, whose loss would be a blow to all of us. Simply put, we offer humanity's greatest minds more time to fulfill their potential. What kind of world would it be if some people achieved immortality through advanced technology while the rest of us died away? Isn't there already enough inequality in the world? Death has some side effects. Our guest is Kevin O'Neill from the University of Redlands. The technology of immortality. Now, as you slip away, do you feel immortal? Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Hi, I'm Ray Briggs. And I'm Josh Landy. Thank you for downloading this episode of Philosophy Talk. Did you know that we've got a library of more than 500 episodes over at our website? Yeah, at philosophytalk.org, we question everything. Except your intelligence. From Aristotle to Zeno, from anarchy to Zen. Become a subscriber today at philosophytalk.org. And now, on with the show. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're here at the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that began at Philosopher's Corner. That's at the Stanford campus where Ken teaches philosophy and I did for 40 years. 40 wonderful years, John. Today, we're thinking about the technology of immortality. Immortality. Well, to me, that means, looking optimistically, heaven. But you don't need fancy technology to get to heaven. You just do what God wants you to, then you die. He takes care of the rest. Now, has Apple or Microsoft come up with a new and improved way of getting to heaven, Ken? John, getting to heaven isn't the kind of immortality we have in mind today. And what we're talking about is living forever, at least for a very long time, right here on Earth. As one writer put it, living until squids evolve to climb trees. That's what we're talking about. And the technology that's going to enable this would be? Well, biologically improved bodies and body parts for one possibility. By harnessing the power of stem cell research and other biological technologies, we could all someday all have replacement organs just waiting at the ready whenever we need them, John. Oh, goody, goody. So that's the first one. What's the second one? Think of the potential of computer technology, for example. Oh, yeah. You're going to, like, upload my consciousness onto a computer so that techies can keep me going indefinitely. Uh, no thanks. Uh, well, why, why not? Well, what are they going to do? Stick me in a warehouse somewhere with my only companions being the tech guys who come by and replace my transistor once a month while I play Internet games the rest of the time? John, have a little imaginations. You might not even, you don't have to be confined anywhere at all. You, you could have a robot body for starters. But heck, you might not even need or care about the body at all. Maybe they could upload your consciousness onto the Internet. You could surf the world at the speed of light, entirely free of the constraints of this waiting down body. Oh, yada, yada, yada. Look, Ken, I, I don't want to be a machine. I don't want to be virtual. I want to be a living, breathing human being. Okay, so you'll stick with the biological approach to immortality. Yeah, you're really not getting it. No matter what form it takes, this is just a terrible idea. 
The one thing the world is not short of is people. And more keep coming all the time. Well, John, if one benefit of humans evolve into immortal beings, well, then we wouldn't need so many replacement people. Replacement people. You mean children. Cute, cuddly, teachable children. You want to do away with children, the, the one thing that makes life worthwhile, so that we can have what? A world full of narcissistic old people just getting older. No, thanks. John, come on. I'm going to let's make the rubber meet the roadie. I'm going to really put this to the test. I'm going to offer you yourself immortality. You take whatever means you like, the biological or the technological. I'm going to offer it to you right now. Would you take it? No, certainly not. Uh, certainly not. Why on earth not? Well, for one thing, it's not clear to me what it is you're offering. Probably not what you think you are. I don't get what you're what you're saying. Well, think about it. You're imagining that a hundred or maybe a thousand years from now, there'll be somebody occupying what's really basically a new and improved body, maybe with some historical connection to me, maybe a whole new set of organs, maybe some bionic appendages, maybe with parts we can't even imagine today, with a mind that's surfing whatever replaces the Internet. Now, will that person really be me in any sense that counts? Will my relation to that person be anything like my relation to me next week? Uh, not clear to me that it would. I don't know why I would even care about this person. Well, why wouldn't it be you? Come on, John. Well, would or wouldn't. I don't think we have the foggiest idea to apply this concept of one and the same person that evolved with respect to ordinary human beings in your fancy schmancy new technological brave new world. Okay, that's a hard question. I admit it's a hard question, but, you know, it's just one question. It's the question. Why should we care about your techno-biological, virtually conscious, futuristic thingies who may be physically nor mentally nothing like the living, breathing human beings that we all are? You, you want to get these things developed so you're selling it as some kind of immortality, but it's just a different world. Why do we care about it? They probably won't have any idea of who they were. They won't remember being us. Why should we want to become them? Oh, John, I think your Luddite tendencies are just showing through again. That's what I think. Well, Luddite, that's not the worst thing I've been called. Well, let's hear from some people who aren't Luddites at all. People who are actually excited enough about this brave new world that's coming to put their money down on it. Our roving philosophical reporter, Shukin Kalatari, found some people who spend millions, millions, John, in the hopes of living forever. She files this report. Dmitry Itzkov is a 34-year-old multimillionaire from Russia. In 2012, he opened up shop in San Francisco with a very interesting mission. I'm trying to create the fully artificial body for the human beings. I'm trying to provide uh, the humanity with their internal life. That's Itzkov on CNBC. His real human body wasn't available for an interview. Itzkov's startup is called the 2045 Initiative, the company plans to mass-produce lifelike avatars that can be uploaded with the contents of a human brain and consciousness. Kind of like the movie Avatar, except more human and less blue. You are not in Kansas anymore. You are on Pandora. Here's Itzkoff again. All of us, we're dying. No other option. So I'm trying to create a mechanism which will be very similar in terms of sensations, but the mechanism which will be more reliable, more capable, and uh, which will be more easy to repair. Itzkoff has already poured millions into what people call cybernetic immortality. 
He's also getting interest from a lot of hedge funds and venture capitalists. We are facing the time that a new industry, really new industry, is emerging. And it will be much bigger than the internet, than the computer IT industry. It will be something huge uh, that will actually unite almost everything because this industry will influence the whole uh, human infrastructure. Silicon Valley bigwigs like Peter Thiel, the co-founder of PayPal, are jumping on board the transhumanist train, and they're spending millions in the process. Another San Francisco AI startup called Vicarious recently rounded up over $40 million from tech folks like Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook and Jerry Yang of Yahoo. Then there's Ray Kurzweil, Google's director of engineering. He says in the future, blood cell-sized devices called nanobots will go into our bodies and work with our neurons to keep us healthy from inside. Here's Kurzweil talking to the online forum Big Think. They'll extend our memory, our decision-making faculties, they'll put our brains on the internet, and they'll also enable us to enter a virtual reality environment from within the nervous system. This virtual reality will feel like the real deal. These will be places to interact with other people, and it will be an extension of real reality, just as Second Life is today. I mean, for some people it's a game, for some people it's quite serious. It's a place to be. Dmitry Itzkov, the Russian multimillionaire, has no doubt in his mind that we'll be able to extend our lives for a really, really long time, but not forever. You know, for me, live forever is a kind of, you know, marketing world, because we don't know what is, what is forever. For, th for a thousand years, for, for a million years, I just want to live. Life extension may come to us through virtual realities or lifelike avatars, or it may not come at all. But Itzkoff says whatever comes, chances are slim that us mortals will ever attain true immortality. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Shuka Kalantari. Thanks, uh, Shuka, for that interesting and deeply moving vision of a future in which Ray Kurzweil and Peter Thiel and and uh, Mark Zuckerberg uh, continue to live and influence our world. <laughs> How about Larry Ellison? I wonder if we could get him involved in this so that the future world would really be just a wonderful place. I'm John Perry. With me is my fellow Stanford philosopher, Ken Taylor. <laughs> and today, we're thinking about the technology of immortality. We're joined now by Kevin O'Neill. He's a professor of philosophy at the University of Redlands. He's author of the forthcoming Internet Afterlife, Virtual salvation in the 21st century. Kevin, welcome to Philosophy Talk. I'm glad to be here, and I was laughing during the whole setup because some of this is also familiar. I'm doing one of my major chapters is on Itzkoff <laughs> in the book that's coming out. So okay, great. So, but now, how did you uh, get interested in these new routes to immortality? Is it something you hope to take advantage of? No, I don't think so. But I, my original interest uh, was provoked when I was probably 10 years old um, when I went to a Catholic uh, parochial school in New York, Irish Catholic, and somebody in our school died. And in the wisdom of those times, we all went to the funeral and saw the corpse. <laughs> and it utterly fascinated me. And I used to go and go to other people's funerals, oddly enough, a bit morbid. But I was just fascinated by the whole scene. So that was the beginning of my interest in death. Ah, and the, then... The strange ways philosophers get involved in our yes, murky discipline. Yes, it had discipline. nothing to do with philosophy. <laughs> but. So, and then, 
Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I just want to say there's these various ways Ken and I looked at some of them. Uh, Shuka looked at some of them. But what's the, to you, what's the most promising, the one, and therefore the one we should think the most about? What, what I'm most interested in, um, and this is not strictly Phil's God, I'm interested in the people like Itzkoff and another person, Dr. Martine Rothblatt, who are actually offering people the possibility of digital immortality, not in a century, but by 2045. Mm-hmm. That's Ray Kurzweil's singularity date. So those are the people who fascinate me. And what they're proposing... Um, is a kind of internet afterlife that's quite well. Let me let's stop for a second, and you can ask questions for clarification because I don't want to go on forever. So, what they're proposing? Tell me more about what they're proposing. But Shuka used this term in her piece that I, I that intrigued me. We you know we used to talk about uh, gender. By there used to be yes. bipolar genders, and then the trans transgender movement came, and people talked right. about transsexuality and she used this term transhumanist transhumanism right. yeah. is that what these folks some of these cyber immortality folks are proposing that we become transhuman yeah there's actually two terms one is transhuman and one is posthuman and these been have been around probably the first modern use julian huxley in 1960 something uh coined the term and the idea here is that and it was captured pretty well in the setup, is that the biological body and its evolution are too inefficient. Now, we're intelligent enough to take control of that process, which is slow and accidental and unpredictable. And the idea here is that we will take control of our own evolution. And part of the taking control is a leaving behind, ultimately, of the biological body, because, as its cuff makes clear, it weighs us down and slows us and doesn't allow us to reach our full potential. This is, there's, I, yeah. <laughs> You're speechless. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so look, I grant you the bi- biology is uh, kind of failed in some ways, but it's also really brilliant. And it's the result of a non-intelligent process that I think it mm-hmm. would take intelligence a really much longer time and it turns out uh, in terms of the biology there's like a small tweak some people think we could make no cell in our body is older than seven years right it's just we have imperfect cell replication isn't improving our cell replication so that our our new cells aren't so bad are are as good as our old cells isn't that a promising route too which doesn't make us transhuman what I've discovered is there's a whole world of transhumanism that's rather complex. Some of the people in it are what are called enhancement people. Aubrey de Grey is probably the biggest name in that. And what they're proposing is what you're saying, that we work with cells and then Kurzweil wants the nanobots in there. Um, but to improve our this cell life and cell longevity... Uh, And that idea is relatively conservative. It's that we accept the body, we improve the body. But people like Itzkoff and Rothblatt, who are the two major people proposing this as a practical solution, fundamentally want to get beyond the body, see the body as as an impedance. Um, and really want to get beyond biology. Okay, we're going to have to dig into whether this is possible and what it would mean in some greater depth. I mean, there's a lot to talk about here. Yes. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. Today, we're thinking about the technology of immortality with Kevin O'Neill from the University of Redlands.
In our next segment, we'll think about what a world filling up with uploaded people, biological super people, transhumans, posthumans, and, and the whole bunch of them would be like. A world of old people? Really, really old people? Digital people? Trans people? Enhanced people? When Philosophy Talk continues. We hope you're enjoying this week's free stream. Help us to continue to produce thought-provoking episodes like this one by contributing to our fundraising drive. Become a partner in our community of thinkers. Head to philosophytalk.org slash benefits. And now, back to Philosophy Talk. In the future, will we be able to tell the difference between just plain old robots and the modern man, Mr. Roboto, who's achieved technological immortality? I'm John Perry. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor, and we're thinking about that technological route to eternal life. Our guest is Kevin O'Neill from University of Redland. So, Kevin, we're going to talk more about what's feasible and all this sort of stuff, but I want to, yes. I want to know what these people are actually imagining for the world and human life. What would it be like for us to live? How would we live together? I mean, what kind of world are they actually imagining? Not what technologies will get us there, but what kind of world are they actually imagining we would be inhabiting? This is a very interesting question because ultimately... Um, when you when you get to the the limit of what these people are thinking, what they're imagining is a human identity that has very little to do with, as I say, our normal body. It has to do with somebody or other. They're not entirely immaterialist. It has to be housed somewhere in a, a server or in a hologram or somewhere like that. But we have to stop thinking about our identity defined by our normal biological body. Uh, in the future, think if you were a robotic android. In your house, you wouldn't need a bathroom or a bedroom or a kitchen <laughs> because none of that would matter. It's just very... And you could probably have a wheeled version of yourself. Well, that's, but, but think of what else. I mean, so think of what else is connected to our the concrete biological beings that we are. Birth and death, marriage, yes. procreation, mm -hmm. our, the, our our social life is surrounded is yes. is driven. I mean, we go out to dinner right with our friend to have a pleasant conversation. Uh, you know, I mean, I mean, so what? I don't I don't know what they're imagining for us. I mean, I can kind of see what the enhanced the people who think of biological enhancement are imagining because we remain under most of that way of approaching recognizably human. But I don't understand what these transhumanists are really imagining about our lives, our lived concrete lives. Well, I think what's going to happen, there will be stages of development. And I suspect that what they're going to say is that we develop virtual um, reality scenarios or build into the android um, eating functions, drinking functions, etc., temporarily. So you either think you're eating or you're eating in some <laughs> other way to eat. And then eventually they really think our minds are going to change under the influence of having a changed environmental situation. And they're not that interested in preserving my personal identity in a recognizable form. They want us to change to be almost unrecognizable. 
So, so because so, we're going to be machines. So, so that makes me think this is really just a huge bait and switch operation. I mean, you're the author of a book that's forthcoming, uh, "Internet Afterlife: Virtual Salvation in the 21st Century." So, afterlife and salvation. These suggest that these beings are going to be us. They make the taxpayers and and voters of of the world want this to happen so they can live on, but. Right. But it's not clear that, and here's the switch. It's, it, they're just saying let's let's fill up the world with these, you know, non-human, semi-human, or transhuman beings, and they'll they'll have some memories that come from the present human beings. So let's pretend that they're us. But but you know, uh, they're no more us because they've got some of our memories. Then Dropbox is my computer because it's got some of my files. This is just bait and switch. That's what I think. What do you think? Yeah, I think the secret here is that, again, the people who are proposing this are not committed to maintaining the personal identity that we're used to. In fact, the ultimate vision, and there's a guy named Steinhaus who who developed a, a theory called digitalism, is that we create a – the entire universe will be transformed into virtual programs that are purely mental and that we will all occupy a single – Shared consciousness He's and a, be one mind. You know what? It's, it's kind of a weird. I, I've got a better idea. Why don't we just go the other way and create a universe that's all vegetables? Then there won't be any violence, and and each of these vegetables could have a little chromosome from well. a living human being, and we would say there we're living on as vegetables in a peaceful world. I think that would be better than having a world full of Ray Kurzweil's living forever. Well, let's think about it. I'm going to try and defend this vision a little bit, Good. not completely seriously, because it seems kind of... I got to tell you, it seems a little adolescent to me. I don't want to. Uh, that is adolescent. Uh, play, you play with your toys. You say, "Oh, computers are really cool," and you realize, "Oh, computers can do all these really cool things." And you start to see the possibilities for what computation can do, and it's really yes. mind blowing, right? It's really mind blowing. But then you let the, your technological visions take over and replace a vision about well, human yes. life and human possibilities, life for humans. But you could say, well, what's so special about humans? What have humans done? They've ruined their, their freaking planet. They've, they dominate the earth. They squeeze out all. So humans, humans, post-humans will be better. They'll be better for the environment. They won't put such a load. They won't need to consume so much uh, right. uh, hydrocarbons. They won't need to pump right. so much stuff into the air. They won't need to destroy animal species and habitat. Yeah, so so right. with, with transhumans, my grandchildren and their grandchildren will have a much better world, except, of course, they won't be there. Right, exactly. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> what, what do you think of that, Kevin? Well, again, the idea here is that, um, well, there's even proposals that we create children, quote-unquote, as representations of ourself online, um, this Dr. Martine Rothblatt talks about something called a beeman, which is a computer-generated child who never, ever had a body. But the idea here goes back, and stop me from going on too long, to a very old idea in Western civilization that the mind is a separable set of operations or processes or patterns of information uh, handling goes back before Plato, and essentially to be human to the many of these guys is not associated with having a body, but with having the patterns of thought that can inhabit what they call any substrate. 
No, right. That's a profound idea. That's throughout the philosophy of mind. And you don't have to be a Cartesian immaterialist to, to think that. Right. You can just think, well, the hardware-software distinction. The mind is the software. It's accidentally right. embedded in a particular hardware, but the hardware exactly. is accidental. And the hardware for us, it happens to be human, but it could be non-human hardware, yes. and it could still be continuous. We, I think we, we have a caller on, along this same line. You're listening to Philosophy okay. Talk. We're talking about technological immortality. Ariana in San Francisco is going to line. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Ariana. Yes, hello. Thank you for taking my call. I just find that this kind of perspective where one buys immortality is wholly distinctive of late-stage capitalism where everything, even life mm -hmm. itself, is commodity. Yes. And um, this is like a culture that we're living in um, that upholds the ego as a holy version of yourself, a pinnacle or focal point of evolution. And this version is out of context from the rest of the world. It reveals this kind of narcissism, a sort of hyper-materialistic view that America is known for around the world, and that's actually threatening our planet. When a small number of individuals, largely American, they're employing survivalist um, tropes in which they uphold their own individual interests, even while our country and our corporations and the ultra-wealthy seem not to be able to figure out such problems as global warming or world-hungry hunger so, so, so devastation. Ariana, I'm very, I'm very sympathetic with your point of view and could listen to you all day, but we probably better go on and see what our guest thinks of all this. So thanks for the call, Ariana. Uh, so what do, you, what do you think, Kevin? Ariana, I... One aspect of my book that I haven't had time to talk about is precisely that. Uh, there is a very old American narrative about death, and one of my theories is that we make up tales about death and represent it to ourselves in ways that are driven by the larger cultural issues. And since at least the 1840s, Americans have wanted death and have thought death of death as user-friendly, and we have <laughs> persisted in creating as I say, user-friendly and pleasant and hedonistic and narcissistic afterlives. There was a rich literature in the middle of the 19th century around the Civil War time called consolation literature in which disaffected uh, women who were aggravated at their marginalized position, especially one named Elizabeth Stewart Phelps, created visions of heaven in her best-selling novels, and they people loved them. And these visions of heaven were very close to what the transhumanists are now proposing. Uh, so, me, so this is not a new tendency in America. Let me, uh, I'm going to press the, her question in a slightly different direction from the one she took, because she talked about capitalism. And uh, it seems to me that may play a role, certainly, in the technological revolution thing. But there seems to me, I wonder what you think about it. There's something deeper. There's this focus on the self, on the yes. self as a possibly immortal thing, that is a highly Western, uh, Western. So I don't, I don't think you could get this same obsession growing up in Eastern cultures because if you have a Buddhist, Hinduist, Taoist kind of, the self is an illusion, and uh, and one gets immortality by merging with the Great One, and separate consciousnesses are not really separate so much. Uh, I mean, so is is this kind of an outgrowth? This is kind of like the extension of the Western conception of the self as this thing that can endure or not endure. What do, you, what do you think of that thought? 
Absolutely. There's a great deal, as uh, I think Ariana mentioned, and you did too, of narcissism in this approach. It's a kind of um, deification of the self, which again is an American tradition. We have the experiment of the, of the great city on the hill. We've created our own democracy or our own nation, and we love the selves that do that. And this goes back very much to Descartes and Locke. But yes, there's a great deal. But at the same time, interestingly, uh, the people who propose post-humanism or becoming one mind tend to get beyond the notion yeah. of the individual self into an Eastern idea of one consciousness. So the, both themes are there. Yeah, we've got another caller, John, in San Francisco. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, John. Yes, hi, thank you. Um, uh, yeah, I, I want to interject a comment. I'd like to note that the basic physics of the universe militates against immortality. Uh, for one thing, the sun, uh, like every star, will get hotter as it ages. And in 700 million to a billion years, it'll get so hot that it'll boil the oceans and scorch the surface of the earth. Uh, and then also, we are living in a very privileged early phase of the universe where stars can still exist. Uh, after a bit of time, they are going to consume all their hydrogen fuel, flare up, shine brightly. John, you're such a out. downer, dude. <laughs> yeah. And, and so... Um, if there, if we do evolve into a, a long-lived species that is transhumanist or post-humanist, they they may see an end coming, and it might induce a sort of anxiety or a sadness, yeah. you know, into the mental life that they have. Um, yeah, please. So I would take I would take your response on the air. John, the air. John, that was cool. I love the I love the thought because look, look, we're not going to get immort real immortality because the universe isn't immortal and we get long enough to see the death of the universe so we can be around to anticipate the death of even just our that's worth paying a lot for (laughs) isn't that (laughs) depressing as all get up so wouldn't this in the end make us much more depressed what do you think kevin uh what i'm thinking about this is um two things well one thing really what these people ultimately propose is that the universe will probably not die even though itzkoff says there's a limit but some of the people who deal in this field think that if we replace the universe or the multiverse as it's called with programs um <laughs> virtual versions of the universe it can go on forever and we can live in it in in multiple virtual realities in many different forms forever. See, John giggled, and I think, are these people Mm -hmm. serious? But the thing is, these are the people, I don't know if everybody knows, the people you're referring to are really wealthy, really successful people are putting extremes amount of money on this Mm -hmm. and don't tend to waste their money. I mean, they've made all these successful enterprises. Yeah, and Ray Kurzweil's, you know, done a lot of, I mean, I I should say, in in saying I don't really look forward to a universe full of Peter Thiel's and Ray Kurzweil's, I don't mean to say these are not nice people. I mean, I know some of them, Mm -hmm. they're very nice people. Maybe they'll call in and give us their view. But until then, I think I should should question my own assumptions here and, and say, look, come on, Plato, since Plato... Since, since the Old Testament, since the New Testament, the idea that human life is, falls short and that there's some realm of, of oh, ideas that if we were free from the body and free mm-hmm. from the things that evolution has foisted on us would, would make a, a, for a much better life or something even better than life. Uh, and we say, seeing some of the same idea in, in Eastern religions, which want to transcend consciousness. So if technology is really going to make these visions that, after That's all, were true. philosophers' visions possible, shouldn't we be a little less skeptical about 
about the possibility? <laughs> no, you're right. Can, Plato, huh? Huh? You know, you're right. If Plato were around and he could, he might put money on this technology <laughs> for just the reasons you say. <laughs> what, what do you think about that, Kevin? He might. Yeah, he might well. I think it's always been a dream. I want to make a quick distinction, though, between the traditional Christian and Jewish ideas of heaven, which always involve the body. Mm-hmm. It's a resurrection theme. And the Platonic idea of immortality, these are fundamentally different. And one of the, the flaws in the Platonic view, which I'll say quickly, is that if you get rid of the body, the soul that survives is somewhat impersonal. And you see that in the Phaedo when Simeus and Sebes, Socrates' interlocutors, are somewhat disappointed with Socrates' arguments for the immortality of the soul because in his version, the person, the individual identity, really doesn't survive. Yeah, so there's lots of complicated stuff, though. I mean, Plato and Socrates thought mortality was a mess, though, and if we could, and, and philosophy right. was partly about escaping it and seeing the eternal mm-hmm. forms and all that. So, I mean, Absolutely. John's right, but we're going we're to talk more about this after a short break. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're talking about the technology of immortality with Kevin O'Neill from University of Redlands. In the next section, we'll consider what we can do to avoid the darker side of this immortality technology. Perhaps the new computer people hybrids will make ordinary humans extinct or turn them into slaves. And what if these hybrids aren't really conscious, just zombies? Might we be creating the zombie apocalypse? Can intelligent public policy forestall this? Old zombies? Really old zombies? And pseudo-zombies plus public policy when Philosophy Talk continues. Thank you for listening to this week's free stream. Did you know that Philosophy Talk receives no money, not a cent, from the radio stations that air us? And that's why we need your support. If you donate, you can become a partner in Philosophy Talk's community of thinkers. Head over to philosophytalk.org benefits to learn how you can become a strategic partner for $250. But any amount you can give, no matter how large or how small, helps us stay on the air and online. Let's get back to the program. A planet full of robot girls and boys. Would that be a good thing? I'm John Perry. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that apparently questions everything. (laughs) Except your intelligence. We really do. This is not virtual reality. I'm Ken Taylor. We're thinking about living forever through technological means. Our guest is Kevin O'Neill from the University of Redlands, and we've got a caller on the line, Andy, in San Francisco. You've been waiting a while. uh, Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Andy. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Um, My question is really about, I mean, it's a noble effort, and I think it'll probably have a lot of good side benefits. Um, But how can they really know how the brain, the mind functions, how all the different parts integrate? Uh, It seems seems like they're going to be working ultimately with a subset of functions that will not sum up the way the, the organic human brain does. Well, thanks Thanks for that question, Andy. That's a real question. I think people are alive mm-hmm. to that question, though. I mean, because you could do things. You'd have to know a lot more about how the mind actually works to actually upload it. I mean, there's, and there's lots of different techniques people imagine could be employed to do this, but, but, but Kevin, you know more about this than I do, so what do you think about uh, uh, Andy's question? Yeah, there's... 
It's a great question. And the, what I want to say before that is that if we do create something that looks like a human being, let's say it's an online avatar talking to us out of a screen, and it says it's me, it, there's really no way for me as the it's like an advanced Turing test to, to ultimately, if it's a well-made uh, nanobot, I'll never know whether it's a philosophical zombie or not because it will say it's self-conscious, et cetera. In any event, though, switching to technologies, there's fundamentally two approaches to this, uh, creating a mind that you can upload. The first one is called WBE or whole brain emulation, and that requires uh, sectioning every neuron and scanning with advanced scanners, like an MRI, but better, uh, every single slice of each neuron. Remember, there's a billion neurons, and they probably have trillion uh, serial connections with other neurons. So that's going to take a long, long time, and it, it require enormous computing power. Uh, the other route, which is being taken by the people who are proposing short-term immortality by 2045 is a system worked out by two people at USC named Gemmel and Bell who think who propose that if you accumulate enough information about a person by giving them psychological tests, getting video, audio, conversations, biography, you can actually create their identity you can, online. You kind of reverse you don't need you kind of reverse engineer it. Right. John, yes. you got a, you got a, some emails here. Yeah, right? we got a good email. Now, now our, our song in the break was about uh, robot girls and boys. Mm -hmm. I don't know they're robot boys or not. But email from Patricia. <laughs> Has anyone thought about the diversity of these new beings? Does yeah. it go away? Is there a need for different sexes, sexual orientations, or races? What are the demographics of these beings? Good question. It's a great question. and something I've been writing about. Um if you go back to Donna Haraway and her famous cyborg essay from the early 80s, I think, uh, she talks about the cyborg, the kind of machine biological um, synthesis, as leaving behind history and gender. And when you look at these avatars, gender will become a moot point. People will be able to become any gender they want. And there could be different genders. They can change species. They can change race. And there could be issues if certain races get picked more often than others. And certainly there's an economic issue, is that more um, well-to-do people will have better avatars. Kevin, I don't want to sound like a Luddite, but I <laughs> will. There was a famous essay. Well, it wasn't his most famous essay, but John Stuart Mill back in the 1800s mm -hmm. called The Wisdom of Nature, in which he argued yes. nature doesn't have any wisdom, and we shouldn't be <laughs> limited by nature, and, 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 and yeah. it, it, he, he could have called it the so-called wisdom of nature. But, mm -hmm. And these folks, these folks probably would agree with Mill that nature is a thing to be exploited, uh, done with what we want. It has no wisdom. We have all the wisdom. But I think that's poppycock. I think nature is this delicately balanced thing that has evolved, especially the biological, the bio, this is delicately balancing that has evolved through, you know, trial and error, has withstood all kinds of catastrophes. I mean, Earth, the life on Earth has been nearly wiped out in several times, and it's come back, and it's experimented, and it's grown. And the idea that a bunch of guys in a computer lab could just think away all that and design a better, I think it's just folly. I think it's just utter, insane 
folly and hubris. And I don't think we should want to transcend our biological being. I don't deny that we should improve our, our being in the world, eliminating diseases and all that is a good thing. But I don't think we have the wisdom actually to design and we have no idea what this world would be like but, uh, or what I the mean, consequences would be I, I mean Ken are you against birth control no I'm not against well, that. birth control that's humans saying look nature has given us these things but with just a few changes yeah, I know it'll be so much better I yeah, but these aren't just a few changes. These aren't tinkering around the edges. These are no. undercutting the very nature of our evolved being in the world. I, I, I just, I, so I think this technological approach is 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 is, 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 is it, and I think it suffers from something that technologists offer us. What I call technological determinism: the technology will, on its own, solve all the problems. Technology yep. ushers in as many problems as it solves. Now we have email from Richard, which is kind of the same tone as you, uh, but makes a different <laughs> point. He says, "Republic policy in a world." with abject poverty, the resources spent on fighting mortality is grossly immoral as well. Or, to put it in a more upbeat way, maybe if we save enough money by ignoring global warming and poverty, we can actually fund these uh, uh, neuron scans that we'll need. That's right. <laughs> what do you think? Are we just being Luddites or what? No, the idea here is, and Itzkoff addresses this to some degree, uh, there will be a weird society, which you mentioned before, in which rich people will be able to live forever and be employing and working with poorer people who are going to die. And that's going to create a huge social stress. And there's a whole range of philosophers, especially existentialist phenomenologists, but also Martha Nussbaum has written about this, about the inherent unnaturalness of leaving the body, that we are embodied beings, as Heidegger says, we're Dasein, we're beings there. Or Merleau-Ponty talks about the, the importance of the body. Um, and many people argue that we to make us non-bodily, whatever we will become, we will not be human. But, okay, but is that good or, again, I think, back to Plato, somebody, you could think, oh, you guys are being so reductive or something, you know, (laughs) the body and all that. But back to, I mean, there is, Plato long ago talked about what he called the muck of mortality, right? Mortality is just a mess. And there are so many things in human life that are, there to enable us to cope with or escape mortality. Philosophy is about coping with and escaping the the limits of mortality, getting you to see the eternal forms and union with the eternal forms and all that. So I don't know. I mean, it's maybe it's not silly, but I just don't think we know how to live as beings who aren't embodied. Well, well, you know, I don't think we have it. You know. You know, Steve Jobs, who's someone that we should all respect uh, the intelligence of, said that death was one of nature's best inventions because it's what allowed the the influx of new life and new ideas. So, uh, you know, death wasn't... I mean, what's so bad about death? I mean, premature death, like in the case of Steve Jobs, painful death, but death itself? Especially from What's a, a big deal? Especially from an overall design perspective. If you were going to design the system of these conscious beings, you wouldn't want the same ones to continue and continue and continue. Yeah, Would like, you? It's kind of like retirement right. in a thriving company. It's really the, the lifeblood of new ideas. Mm-hmm. What, do you, what do you think, Kevin? Yeah, that's one of the oddities of these visions is that um, some people, as I say, Rothbaut and her Terrasem movement, thinks you can create people online who have never lived in this world and there will be generation of some sort. 
But there's that odd idea. But if you, and if you make everybody virtual and take them out of their bodies, we can keep reproducing. And as soon as people die, they'll disappear from the world. These people won't be staying around as physical mm-hmm. bodies. Itzkoff thinks ultimately we'll become holograms. Yeah, I'm not sure how <laughs> I, that works technically I suppose, without a light source. I suppose. Sure. I suppose you could have death even in this virtual world in a following kind of way, which is what you said just suggested this to me. Just like software programs go obsolete, you know, uh, <laughs> software consciousnesses could go obsolete. A, a consciousness right. could just run out well, of its utility and nobody would want to see it replicated. I, I, I've <laughs> felt obsolete for years. I mean, I keep solving <laughs> philosophical problems and, uh, and uh, people don't even remember what those problems were. <laughs> uh, look, look, Kevin, bef- before we get too far along, this book you've got, Internet Afterlife, Virtual Salvation in the 21st Century. Now, my notes say it's forthcoming. So when is it forthcoming, and, and where will well, we get I, it? I have to finish the manuscript. <laughs> there is the that, year. yeah. Hopefully not in the <laughs> yeah, great hereafter. December 31st. Oh. Uh-huh. And, <laughs> and then it'll probably be out middle of next year, and it's coming out with uh, Prager. Prager, okay. Um, yeah. Well, I'm going to keep my eye out for that uh, because I think this is fascinating, but I don't want to do all the work that you've done uh, <laughs> reading all these highfalutin uh, oh, uh, entrepreneurial so, computer scientists. Yes. So, Kevin, I can't, I can't tell. tell. Give us. I want one last thought from you. I can't yes. tell whether you're pro or con this brave new world. I really can't tell. Tell me whether you're pro or con. And I'll frustrate because I'm neither in the sense that what I want to do is to get out the ideas as fairly as possible and to give a good representation of it. I don't ultimately think, well, I know I wouldn't do it. And I, again, what stops me is the idea that somebody can create a replica of me that will be a very plausible replica, but there's no way for me to tell going into that project, whether that will be me or whether I'll be dead, and whether my descendants will be speaking to a brilliant philosophical zombie. Uh, so Is it, it's think- frustrating because there's no, there's no real test. You say you can't know before going into it, but could anyone know no. after going into it? Will that zombie be able to know whether it's you? If they were there, yes. But we don't, as I say, anybody, again, it's a version of the Turing test. Anybody asking my replica whether it's me will get the answer. Of course, it's me. I'm reflective. I'm thoughtful. Well, John, well Kevin, one thing I'm sure of is I'm sure that that's you on the end, other end of this uh, radio line. But yes, uh, this conversation uh, has to come to an end, so I'm going to thank you for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. I've enjoyed it. Our guest has been Kevin O'Neill. He's a professor of philosophy at the University of Redlands. He's author of the forthcoming Internet Afterlife, Virtual Salvation in the 21st Century. So, John, what kind of thoughts are you having about this now? I've turned into more of a Luddite, I think, than I started. (laughs) Well, I'm about as big a Luddite as when I started, but, you know, I try to keep open-minded. I've written a limerick. My friends all want to get uploaded, scanned, recorded, and encoded. Won't they feel clever living forever while I get buried and eroded? Oh, John, no, that's, that's <laughs> clever. You know, my very last thought about this is I, I just, I am overwhelmed. I am struck again and again by how people think of the technology and think that the technology governs things and will solve things without thinking about the human problem and the human situation that we actually concretely have to deal with. But, you know, this conversation uh, continues It's already begun, and it continues at Philosopher's Corner at our online community of thinkers, where our motto is, cogito ergo blogo, I think, therefore, I blog. You can be, and you too, 
can become a partner in that community by visiting our website, philosophytalk.org. Now, a guy who talks this fast must be half robot already. I'm talking about Ian Scholes, the 60-second philosopher. Ian Scholl, some of us are just not content to be mortal beings and accept the relative immortality that comes with that, by which I mean we might die, but as our bodies decompose, they can become nutrients. Our bodies feed the ducks. Ducks feed rhinoceroses. We eat the rhinoceroses, and the circle of life goes on forever. So shut up. It's not about you. But some among us just can't let it go. They want to increase our cycle of years, even though it's contrary to nature and can lead to bad science fiction and vampire movies. Not surprisingly, among those who want to expand our years, there are those just depressed about getting old, and there are those who are trying to do something about it. Those people are wealthy. Yes, instead of funding colleges or foundations, these few, these wealthy few, are paying for scientists, vitamins, apps, conferences, books, research, and the end result hoped for, for some, is not just a much longer life, but immortality, which strikes me as unlikely. But then again, I'm not rich. Maybe there's a way to download one's consciousness into a robot and keep that going for eternity. Sure, why not? I can only say no to that one because I don't have a billion dollars to play with. Could be like pouring the old wine into a new bottle, but who would drink it? Wouldn't you get lonely on the shelf all by yourself? I mean, there probably won't be a lot of other billionaire robots in the future. If you are downloading your consciousness into a robot, is it really you? So you'll probably spend all your free time contemplating questions like that, alone, on your shelf. But what about the option of just replacing limbs, organs, etc. as they wear out? Well, you could do that too, I suppose, but it's like that old thought experiment about the used car that you keep replacing parts for. Sooner or later, once you've replaced all the parts, it is just a replica of the car you once had. Not the actual original car. Might as well sell it for parts. And who's going to want those parts by the time you've replaced the muffler or lungs for the hundredth time? Will human beings even look the same anymore? You might have evolved into Twitter-shaped mollusks who subsist only on gossip and fear. And you, poor replicated human, you will be immortal, but once again, all alone. And how will you clean yourself, human of tomorrow? Will your flesh replacement wipe clean with a damp cloth, or will you need special solvents? Who's going to do that for you, an immortal servant? Why would an immortal servant want to waste time seeing to your needs? He or she has his own infinity to fill up. And here's another concern the immortal will face that we don't, erosion. What effect will wind, rain, snow, or the gentle lapping of the salt sea waves have on our new physical bodies? Over centuries, our new bodies, just like our own now, will break down, chip off, and fall into the ocean or into the forest where there's nobody to hear it. And of course, our bodies are not more immortal than the universe itself. What about entropy? Does the immortal health plan cover that? If we face heat death of the universe, I suppose you could apply sunscreen, but if the sun is just a black hole now, what's the point? Well, these are just some of the issues our new gods, the billionaires and their Teflon bodies, will face billions and billions of years from now. Well, excuse me, just five billion years from now, I guess. Wow, time is just flying by. Before I know it, it'll be the Big Bang again. Then where will you be? I gotta go. Philosophy Talk is a presentation of Ben Manila Productions and the trustees of Leland Stanford Junior University, copyright 2015. Our executive producer is David Demarest. The program is produced by Devin Strolovich. Laura McGuire is our director of research. Our marketing director is Dave Millar. Thanks also to Ted Muldoon, Merle Kessler, Erica Topit, and Mark Stone. Support for Philosophy Talk comes from various groups at Stanford University and the partners at our online community of thinkers. And from the members of KALW San Francisco, where our program originates. The views expressed or misexpressed on this program do not necessarily represent the opinions of Stanford University or of our other funders. Not even when they're true and reasonable. The conversation continues on our website, philosophytalk.org, where you too can become a partner in our community of thinkers. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. Thank you for listening. And thank you for thinking. There is still good in him. He's more machine now than man, twisted and evil.
Holy mackerel, you're still listening. You must be a big fan. You should become a strategic partner. Donate $250, get lots of cool benefits, help keep the program on the air. Yeah, but really, any amount helps. Thanks for listening. Thanks for thinking. And thanks for donating.